Evening, everybody. Thank you so much for coming out on such a, an inclement night. We used to say that in the old days. And remember that inclement weather? <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah, I must say I'm a, I'm a chastened and humbled Irishman tonight because uh, I did sort of lay it on a bit thick this morning, didn't I? So, hey, if you dish it out, you have to be able to take it. I think we were robbed, actually, but there you go. But I'm not, I'm not going to make a big deal about it, okay? It's not a big deal. It's, not, it's only a game. Uh, what, I, what I'd like to do is to talk to you about, uh, uh, continue, I, I've, what, what this morning was, was a part of a, what I have talked about, I call it my why series, why did I do all those things, and so what I want to do tonight for a few minutes is to talk a little bit about why we did what we did in our church, and I know that sounds a bit convoluted, but believe it, it gets better, it'll make sense in a minute, okay, and so it's kind of my philosophical overview of what, what, um, what instructed and formed the way we did ministry in CFC? Uh, because I think you've got to have a philosophy of ministry. This is this is who we are. This is what we believe, and it shapes our actions. Now, the, the strategy sometimes worked out. There were different strategies, but this was essentially why I built the church the way I built it. And and I suppose it started uh, when I got converted when I was sixteen and a half as a as a young man in Ireland and. Uh, I went along to a little brethren assembly that my grandparents were part of. And every Sunday night, a bit like tonight, we had a gospel service. And at 6.30, do you remember, anybody remember those days at 7 o'clock? And then 6.30, you'd all meet for prayer in the back room. We'd get on our knees and we'd pray. We'd say, Lord, bring the sinners in. We, we really did. And so, you know, when you're, when you're 16, 17, you kind of, you know, you're so passionate about it. And I kind of thought, looked around and thought, but nobody ever came. So you could just imagine, you know, somebody, you know, living a block away from the church and, and you know, at half six exactly, we start to pray and they're sitting watching TV, drinking a bud, you know, and suddenly they, they find themselves compelled to go into our church. I don't, I don't want to go, but they're making, something's drawing me in. But that never really happened. We sort of, I think we thought that would happen. So one day when I was about 18, I said to my grandfather, why do we do this? And he said, well, their job, our job is to preach and their job is to come and listen. Which it was, I thought was nuts then and I think it's nuts now. But you, you, I understand what I was saying. And I said, well, so, well, I said, well, why don't we go and invite some people? <sighs> and the elder said, wow, that's a novel idea. I, I, seriously, so we got the, do you remember the, uh, the, the Good News newspaper? You could get this Christian newspaper with testimonies and stories, and you put your logo on the bottom of it, and you invited people. So we, we ordered some of those. We, they came to my house, uh, and my home, and uh, the night arrived for us to do, to go out around the doors, and, and nobody showed up but me. I was 17. Maybe 18. And I went to the very next house. We were in a, in a, I, I, the very first house and I knocked the door and the man came to the door and I said hi I'm Paul Reed I go to such and such gospel hall I've got a love to give you a free copy of the good news newspaper and invite you to our gospel service on a Sunday evening and he said oh you're from the BBC and I said no no you know I, no no my, I went over it all again he says I haven't told you have they and I said no, told me what he said about 15 years ago in that church, they had a fight one Sunday morning. Two, two, I kid you not, two men had a punch-up. And he said, it spilled out onto the, onto the car park. And the police were called, and the two of them were arrested. 
And he said, from that day to this to the neighbours, we call it the BBC, the Brethren Boxing Club. <laughs> now, I only ever, I only ever, <laughs> I only ever went to one, to one house because I came home and I said to my grandfather, this guy told me this nonsense. And he said, no, it's true, actually. But I tell you what it did. The, the Irish philosopher Burke, uh, Edmund Burke, once said, every conviction was a whim at birth. In other words, as we look back at the booming, as the booming voice of God, started off as something that was like, Chew, what was that? Something just, there's a little fleeting something hits you. And, and even as an 18-year-old, I remember saying to my grandfather, could we not have a church where people would food, feel welcome and where we could really engage with the people around us? Now, I had no idea what that meant. I had no idea what that would look like. I had no idea what shape that was. But something was birthed in me through adversity and through negativity that I wanted somehow to do something different. So when the chance came all those years later to start something which I didn't know anything, I didn't know what I was doing or what we were doing, but somehow we said, Lord, we want to do something that's different. Now, please, can I just say, all those folks in my brethren assembly, you know, they're my relatives, my friends, they're, they're wonderful Christians. In fact, I was invited back recently to take part in a funeral you know, you know and, and so I felt right at home and so so it was uh, and, and so things have changed so I, I'm not trying to get at them I'm just trying to say we thought could we do something that was different and the way that we thought we would do it I said well what if we did what if we tried to do ministry the way Jesus did it and it kind of shaped it kind of shaped the way we did what we did. So I'm going to read to you in Mark chapter 1 to start with, and then we'll go through and pick up a few, a few uh, uh, verses. I'd like to say it was all mapped out. It wasn't. It was incremental. I stumbled on it. I worked it out. I shaped it. But it essentially came from Mark's gospel. Uh, Mark 1, 14, and it says this. Um, After John, John the Baptist, was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And once they left him, they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them. They left, their, they, they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So <clears throat> what, I, what I want to do is to have a look at this whole idea of the kingdom of God uh, tonight and what that looked like. Because Jesus uh, begins his ministry, certainly in Mark, with the, the cry, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. And, and he declares the message without hesitancy or ambiguity. And you know why? Because probably no other message would have grabbed the attention of his first century hearers. Now, if, some, if you went into Hale's own city center today and stood up and said, the kingdom of God is here, you would be locked up probably because it doesn't mean anything to anybody. But of course, in, in the context of Israel in those days, every Jew would have had some inkling of what the kingdom of God was, was all about, at least what they thought it was. Because it, it, the concept of the, the kingdom of God, God ruling, the reign and rule of God, carried with it centuries of Jewish hope and ultimately spoke of God's plan for the nations. And according to religious leaders of the day, it, it had three key elements to it. Number one, a full return from exile. When God would come back and reign in the land again, people, the Jews who were exiled over the years, would, would come back, all those of Jewish descent, and there would be complete religious, social, and political 
political autonomy. Number two, the temple would be rebuilt. There was Herod's temple there, but to its former glory, so that once more, God would dwell with his people. So there was a sense in which it was like the the old tabernacle where the Shekinah cloud of the presence of the glory of God came and dwelt among them. They said when God's kingdom would be established on earth, that God would come back and dwell. And number three, of course, all enemies of Israel would be defeated. And of course, when you think if you're a third world country, because that's what they were, I kind of think we, we think of Israel in those days as like Tuscany, you know, sitting on flat roofs, drinking wine, eating grapes. But, you know, Josephus, interesting what they say. They say that 50% of all children died before the age of 10. So we're talking about a serious, seriously undernourished, underprivileged country. So when somebody comes along, and when you're pretty oppressed, and there's people around you you don't like, you don't want them to be there, and suddenly somebody says, the kingdom of God is here. You'll, your ears will prick up and listen. So he has he proclaims that message. Now of course the, the, uh, of course the reality is that there were they had different ideas on how to do that. There were the zealots who believed that you could bring God's rule about again through bloody revolution. And there were the, I suppose there were the Herodians who thought, well, look, we've we got to get the best that we can, so we'll have compromise, political compromise. There were the, the Essenes who, who were uh, personal holiness and separation and pietism. And there were the Pharisees who basically thought that if everybody kept the law, God would usher in his kingdom rule. Now, of course, Jesus well, well, speaking the message, the kingdom of God is here. The, he didn't buy into any of those particular things because he is he's saying something entirely different. And he's saying, and, and I'll, I'll try and paraphrase it with you. The message was, Jesus was saying, the reign and rule of God is available, not just in the future, but here and now. So the kingdom, where you have a kingdom, you have a king. So when he says the kingdom of God is here, what he's effectively saying is the king has arrived. And when you take on the agenda of the king, that is Jesus, in your life, you will begin to experience the reign and rule of God through your life. So there's something dynamic and powerful. Somebody, somebody once said that, they, that probably a good idea of what the, uh, the kingdom idea is, uh, of what kingdom life is like, is the word shalom. It's not, just, it's not just the Hebrew word peace, but it's, an old, it's, a, it's a much broader word. And, and it's a, an Hebrew word that conveys the idea of, kin, of, of kingdom. It's mentioned 250 times in Scripture. And it gives us an inkling of what life could be like when lived under God's agenda. And it incorporates reconciliation, first of all with man, or God to man. And then reconciliation with men and, and women together. It's got to do with contentment with health, with justice, with liberation, fulfillment, freedom, and hope. So when we proclaim the kingdom of God and the gospel of the kingdom, we're saying to people that when you personally come into contact with the King of Kings, Jesus, and he comes to reign in your life, you begin to experience, first of all, reconciliation with God. Then it affects your relationship with other people. And then it begins to change your outlook as to how you treat the earth and treat the world and how you treat society. So the whole idea of the kingdom of God reigning and ruling in your life is the idea of God transforming you through a meeting with the king. Now, I suppose what, I, what I'd say now is, you know, Jesus came preaching the message. Now, if I was, if I was telling you how to bake the best chocolate cake on earth tonight, after about half an hour of talking, you know what you'd say to me? What would you say? 
You'd say, bake one and let us taste it, wouldn't you? So Jesus, so what you find is Jesus announces it and then spends the next three and a half years demonstrating what it looked like. So, and, and particularly Mark's gospel, Mark, Mark according to uh, our, our uh, theologians, say that he got most of his material from Peter. So Mark's gospel is not necessarily a chronological order of events. In other words, it, they, they happened okay, they're real events, but, but Mark takes them because he's trying to illustrate something. So he takes instances here. You can imagine Peter telling them the stories, going, well, there was the day that we did this, and then there's, do you remember that time we did such and such? So they don't necessarily come in a every day Peter kept a diary. It's the idea of Mark putting things in and instances and stories and, and illustrations and, and things from Jesus' life that illustrate what the kingdom of God looks like. So that's where I'm kind of going. So when you come in to Mark's gospel, the very, as he announces the good news of the kingdom of God, what you, what you begin to see is this, is number one, the kingdom of God is about relationships. Why? He takes 12 men on a spiritual journey. It's the first thing he does. He gathers a group of men together and says, hey guys, we're going on a journey together. And he eats with them, he talks to them, he lives with them, he, he preaches, uh, he preaches, he, he disciples them. And for three and a half years, they get to look, they get to see what the kingdom of God looks like. Now, I, I want to suggest to you that if we're going to build the kingdom of God on earth, then it has to be through primarily building relationships with people. It is the essential building block of the, the kingdom of God. And, and <clears throat> I would say, we, you see, it, it is not enough to actually simply turn and shout at people and tell them what the kingdom is. You've got to take them on a journey in your life. And by what you say and the way that you live, let them see what the reign, of real, the reign and rule of Jesus looks like in someone's life. And it's the kingdom of God. I think the whole idea of, of journey is something that... Um, is, is very important in our society and in our culture today that we take people on a journey and we walk with them. Actually, on a, on a if you, you want to do a course, the Alpha course is a classic example of that. You, you, groups of people come together and they connect and, and they, they begin to go on a, on a journey together. Uh, let me tell you a story about George. He was, uh, his daughter had been a member of our church. He got converted and he hated me. Well, you can, you can understand that, of course, but he really didn't like me. And, uh, but eventually, eventually, after years and years, he came to an Alpha course. After the second week, he said to me, Paul, I found a group of people to whom I feel I belong. He'd only been there two weeks, but there was a dynamic in the, in the relationship just for two weeks as they went on a journey with him. He went through the whole course, 10 weeks, the weekend included, and he, and he didn't become a Christian because we wanted to get him to meet the king for himself. At the end of Alpha, he said to me, Paul, I love that so much. He said, I wonder, could I do the next Alpha and be a helper? And I said, well, George, that's a bit problematic. You're, you know, you've kind of got to be a Christian to really. He said, I'm going to bring four friends. I said, all right, you can. I said, you know, you know, you've got a bit of give and take here. All right. <clears throat> so he became a helper and he wasn't, a, you know, he's on the journey. And, uh, and so he went through, he brought the four friends, took them in his group, took them all through Alpha. They all came to Christ and he didn't. He was the hardest nut we ever had to crack, honestly. But he, he, did, it, he did it a third time and eventually came to know the Lord. And, and it was one of those incredible stories of taking someone on a journey. And, and that's why I believe that people need to understand and know what God's rule looks like in us. 
people, most people today have a faith journey. It's, it's, one of, it's one of those interesting things. Now, let me, let me do a little straw poll here. I think there, there are people who are Christians. There are Damascus Road Christians and there are Emmaus Road Christians. You know what that means? There are those who had a all lights, whistles and bells conversion. Bang, you know, boom, it's an instant. And, and other people are on a journey and they're walking along and they're talking and they're getting on. And then suddenly they open their eyes and go, oh, Jesus was there all along, for goodness sake, there you go. Do you, do, you, do you know what I mean? Sort of, you get the picture. Okay, how many people had a Damascus Road experience when they came to Christ? I want you to look around. These are the people who are truly saved. Okay. <clears throat> the rest of you, there's a big question mark over you. And the, and, the, and the rest of you either haven't quite started the journey or you're on Damascus Road. And that's what you find with life today, that people are on this journey. Now, I would, I would contend that there has to come a moment in their own experience where they meet the king. Because second-hand experience, I say it's a bit like secondary smoking. I mean, it's a bad illustration, but you get the picture, don't you? You know what I mean? You can, you can blow smoke over people and they get, a, they get a hint of what it's like, but, you know, they need to take a draw themselves. But you see, if you're really... If, yeah, I know, that's a bad illustration. Forget that. Could we expunge that from the tape, okay? Preacher equates Jesus with cigarette smoking. I didn't mean that one, okay? But you, get, you understand what I'm saying? Actually, what you want people to do is not just to experience the kingdom of God flowing through us. You want them to meet the king. You want them to meet the king. Because it's when they meet the king, he transforms their life. They take on his agenda and something begins to be transformed in their life. Okay, the second thing. And it's an interesting one. Uh, on, again, remember Mark setting them out to illustrate something. They went into Capernaum and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went to the synagogue and began to teach. And then it says, just then a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. And the impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek or a shriek, as I said once, but it was definitely a shriek. I, I, I do think it's interesting that the very next thing that he illustrates is, a, is the power of Satan. And it, it illustrates several things to me. Number one, that we're in a spiritual battle. See, we, we, we kind of think if we, if, we got, if we got the argument right and we got everything right, they would come to Christ. People would eventually come. But you know something? Paul makes it very clear in 2 Corinthians 4 why people actually aren't believers. It says this, and I'm using, I'm using a King James Version because that's the one I learned off by heart. It says, he says, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the eyes of those who don't believe the gospel. So the reason your friends and your family aren't saved is because they're spiritually blind, because a veil, a cover has been brought over their eyes and we're involved in a spiritual battle. And if we're going to build this kingdom of God, you know, we can work, we can do the best, we can lift our, our society up by its bootstraps, we can pour ourselves into them, but we've got to understand that we are in a spiritual battle. And if we, the first thing we can do, we can pray for them. And when it comes to confronting the, 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 this spirit, we do it by prayer. That's one of the first things. I, honestly, you will, you will never be effective in reaching your friends for Christ until you first prayed for them because we're involved in a spiritual battle. And unless God illuminates them, they will not get converted. I think that God illuminates them, uses your word of testimony, and through the word of faith, it, salvation comes to them. So we're in a spiritual battle. I also think, number two, and, and we got it here, that there are people whose lives are messed up so much that they've actually, they're demonically oppressed. 
Now, I don't want you to get nervous about that. I, I don't belong in the camp where it is a demon till it proves it isn't. Do, do, you, do you understand? I'm more in the camp it isn't till it proves it is. But nonetheless, if it's there, let's not be afraid. Let's just, let's just deal with it, okay? Let's just take authority in Jesus' name, cast the thing out. Let's deal with it. And on a third level, and, and this is where it gets slightly hairy and controversial, okay? I think there's institutional evil as well. Let me, give you, let me give you a couple of examples. Northern Ireland. Uh, we, what we found was this, that where you, where you have in society a group of people, even just a few, who come together for evil intent, something, I think, spiritual comes behind them and reinforces that in an even more powerful way. So, so in Northern Ireland... We, we, you know, people talk about the enemy and the terrorists. And we said, yeah, they're real, okay. But there's something far deeper going on behind them. Because when people get together for evil intent, the enemy comes and makes it even more powerful. And so I think that we've got to come against it in the opposite spirit. I, my, my feeling is that in South Africa, when apartheid came up, there was a group of people who got together and said, we're going to do this thing. Something, something came. You, you, you read about this in the, the theology of a man called Walter Wink, who just passed away recently unmasking the powers and he talks about this institutional evil and, and I think in our society there are things going on to do with poverty and injustice that, that, that actually are there's something going on behind them and we need to take it on now, I don't, I don't want to shout at it. I don't want to blow a shofar at it. I, I, and if you want to do it, that's fine but you know, I'm not going to do it. What you do is you come at it in the opposite spirit that's what I think you do. So in Northern Ireland, what we did was, where there was a spirit of, was a spirit of hatred, we said we're going to be a people of love. Where there was, where there was uh, inequality, we're going to be people of justice. Where, where there was uh, exclusion, we're going to include people. So we came at it in the opposite spirit. But, but in terms of doing the ministry and building the kingdom, please, above all, it's about relationships, but remember, this is a spiritual battle. And you've got to pray. And if you don't pray, you, we will not see any breakthrough. Number number three, and, and I and I um, let me just if I can. Yeah. Well, there's two here. Uh, the first one for me is uh, physical healing. I, I, Mark one twenty nine. Jesus heals many. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. And Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went up to her, took her hand, and helped her up. And the fever left her, and she began to wait upon them. Now, I, I, I actually believe that one of the things we've got to do, and I think this is on different levels, is affect the whole man. So it's about physical healing. So, so I, I'm, I want to put my hands up and, and, and say to you, when people are healed, it's a sign that the kingdom of God is near. And when Jesus healed, what did he do it for? To vindicate his preaching, to make a prophetic statement that one day all sickness would be banished. And, and he did it because he had a heart for them. He was out of compassion. He loved people and was moved by their suffering. And he met their physical needs. He fed 5,000 people. He was genuinely moved with compassion. And so when you see when you see God's people, not just treating people as soul fodder, and please hear me from that one, because I think I want to see people, we need to treat the whole person, because that's what Jesus did. So I think there's two levels to this. Every time in the work that you do, Austin, you put clean water in somebody's cup and a meal in their stomach, good food in their stomach and a roof over their head, you're building the kingdom of God in Jesus' name. But I think we're dealing with something, because Jesus dealt with the whole man. But I also think, and I, and I need to say this, that we, I think we need to press through in terms of the issue of healing. If we're all being honest, 
We talk a lot about it, but we'd love to see more than we're currently seeing. It was many years ago that I, I went to India and, and I, uh, we were in a, a place called Gunter, which is the chilly capital of India. It is the hottest place on God's earth. They put chilies and raw pineapples. You can't eat anything. I mean, honestly, it was, it was, so we had come to, we had come to Gunter and done some meetings which were, which were mediocre at best, to be honest with you. And we were getting ready to go home. It was about, it was about eight at night and we'd finished and we were catching a train at 12 o'clock to go to Madras as it was. It's called Chennai now and an overnight train. And we're getting packed up and Alan, one of our uh, elders and co-workers was with me. And uh, we, we uh, were in a hotel and a knock came to the door and the door opened and a little Indian gentleman stood in front of us and he said, could I see you? Well, you know, all right. You know, everything I knew. And he said, so we invited him in. It was kind of embarrassing. He sat down and I said, he said, I, I'm not a Christian. I'm a Hindu. And he said, I've got throat cancer. He said, cancer of the esophagus. And I'm dying. And he said, I'm a civil engineer, perfect English. And I've spent all my family money on doctors. In fact, I was out of town at a clinic. I've just got back tonight. And when I got back, I saw your posters in the railway station. And he said, I thought, I wonder, could Jesus help me? And everything in you wanted to say, probably not. <laughs> you know, that, that's, our faith wasn't big. It was, I'll be honest, it wasn't big. You know, you, you want to say, no, it's not going to. So we said, well, so Alan and I ret- retired to the, the euphemistically called bathroom. And, uh, and uh, Alan said, what are we going to do? I don't know, we better pray for him. So we came out, you know, the two of us. And, and uh, the sweat is slashing off us. And we put him in a chair. And, you know, we say, just hold your hands out. He looks at us as if we're nuts, you know, hold your hands out. And, and, uh, and he says, so we start, we, start, we start giving it large to him, you know. And we bind it and we loose it and we cast it in and we cast it out and we rebuke it and we, we hit him with a Bible. We do everything we know to do. We do the best healing prayer we can do. And then the worst thing is, of course, I look over at Alan. And the two, Alan is, what would he be? He's about two inches smaller than me, but he's about eight stone heavier than me. I'm serious, he's a big lad. And I, in those days, I was about four stone heavier than I am today. And I look over, and the two of us are standing in our boxer shorts. Because it's so warm. And I don't even, you know, it's one of those weird things. And then, and it gets weird, because there's no music, there's no, there's no just as I am, there's no soft lights, and no play it again, you know. Hallelujah. You know, it's, it's, Benny's gone, it's nothing, there's nothing there. It's it's India, we're on our own. And, and I look over, and, I, and we've got boxer shorts, but I, Alan has, I've got Scooby-Doo boxer shorts on, and Alan has, Alan has Mickey Mouse boxer shorts on. It was the days when you had those. Well, I don't know how, you can imagine how, how dopey this was, this guy, and we're praying away from I don't know what he thought. I mean, he must have thought he had... You know, what did he think? Anyway, we pray for him, and we give him, we give him some money, a thousand rupees, which is about thruppence, and uh, you know, and we gave him a card, and away we went. And to be honest with you, I forgot all about it. About four months later, Alan comes into my office. He's got a letter from the man, and it says, "My dear brother in Christ, as you can see, I become a, a disciple and a follower of Jesus." And he said, "And I've been completely healed with cancer of the esophagus." Oh yes, <laughs> that hand was on his head. And the magic letter. So 
I got to the next Sunday, of course, Alan and I told the story. Got everybody out in the church who'd had a headache in the last two weeks and we lined them all, we lined them all up on the thing and we, yeah, yeah, and we went around, we prayed for them and we, and we, we did everything. Honestly, not, how are you feeling? Still sick, all right, okay. On the next one, did everything. And then Alan whispers to me, it's because we don't have our lucky underpants on. <laughs> he actually did say that to me. I tell you that story because it's a great story. But, but it illustrates, you know, God's still in the business of healing people. There is a God who heals today. He is the Lord, our healer. And so I, I, I suppose there's something in me that says, look, could we, I remember the late John Wimber, I said to him one day, John, we've been praying for some people and nothing much has happened. He said, listen, when you prayed for them a hundred times, come back and talk to me. And it really taught me a lesson. I thought, I think we give up too easily. Now, I, and I, I'm, I want to be in the camp that says, you know something, we have a God and he heals today. All right? And when you see that happen, something began. You see something of the explosion of the kingdom of God. So in our own church, we give an opportunity for it. We say, we'll pray for the sick. We, we have a, a prayer clinic every Thursday night. And <clears throat> we just open it up. We put leaflets around the doors, etc. 50% of people who come are not Christians. And honestly... You say, what if, what if they don't get healed? You know, the only people who get upset if they don't get healed are Christians. People who aren't Christians are so just so delighted that somebody cares enough about them to pray, take a minute to pray for them. And, and they're the people who come to know, and many of them come to know Christ through it. It's one of our best evangelistic tools. And so there's something about there about, this physical, about the physical needs. Okay, okay, moving on, because I need to, I need to go with another 10 points to... There's, there's, a, there's a wee one here that, I, that I, I'd have to say to you, this is a, Dan, you're, you're a theologian, aren't you? And uh, the, the, uh, you've, got to put, you've got to put weight on Scripture. Uh, you've got to put uh, the amount of weight on Scripture depending on the clarity of Scripture. So if you think Scripture says something, you can't be too dogmatic about it. You've got to be careful about that. Okay, some things you can say absolutely firmly, 100%. Other things you go, you know, now, what, what I, I, I note, and, and I say this is me thinking, I'm not saying this was Mark, although, you know, it may have been. He, he's very, he puts in a little story about the mother-in-law of, of Peter. And he, he says that she has a fever and Jesus heals her. But of course, under Jewish law, you, uh, to touch somebody with a fever or leprosy, which we'll find out in a minute, to touch somebody with a fever rendered you unclean. And I think it's, it's one of the first stories you find in the Gospels where we begin to get an inkling of how Jesus treated women. Because it says, it says that he touched her, healed her, and she began to serve them. And it's just a little, I think it's a little cameo. I'm not, I'm not going to die for it or swing on this particular bit. But I do think there's a little insight here. And I say this to you. Where you see women being oppressed, you do not see an expression of the kingdom of God. Where you see women being liberated to play their full part in the church, you see the kingdom of God in action. Can I get an amen there? Okay, I'll, I'll move on there because that's, I'm pushing my luck there. Okay. Uh, the, the next one, of course, is the uh, is two stories down to back to chapter one. Uh, Jesus heals a man with leprosy. A man with leprosy came to him, begged him on his knees, if you're willing, you can make me clean. 
Then later on in verse 13, it says uh, Jesus calls Levi and eats with sinners. So you, you get this uh, picture, and, and I've, my little heading would be the excluded or included. Because Mark, remember, Mark's trying to illustrate something. So he's not only telling us a true story, which it is, of course. He's trying to say something about what's going on here. He's trying to illustrate what the kingdom of God is like. So let's take the two cases. Uh, leprosy. If you, were, if you contracted leprosy, you were both a, a, a religious uh, outcast and a social outcast because of, it was contagious. So nobody could touch you. All right? So you were excluded from society. And uh, if you were a publican, or as it used to be called a tax collector, they were just, I don't know if you know what they were, they were technically, I suppose, they were the uh, early franchisees. What uh, what their owns would do would come into a territory, assess it for tax, and then sell sell that to the highest bidder. Then they had powers to collect that tax. They could stop a man going to market and take a percentage of his goods. They had armed guards with them. They were extremely powerful and, for the most part, corrupt. Josephus tells the story of how they found a statue to a righteous tax collector such was the rarity of it so so you get the picture here jesus is collecting his 12 he's getting his band together now i would have wanted to i want i would wanted to pick the pick of the, the pick of the bunch but what does he do he picks a man who's despised in society he picks and he doesn't really do it he doesn't do it at night he goes to him and he's at his desk in full view of everybody and he says come follow me and what's, what's the illustration? The illustration simply is that Jesus, those who were excluded are now included. And all the people that you know and I know and your granny and your auntie and your father and mother and your friends, see, people say they'll never get saved. Jesus wants to include them. That's, the good, that's, why, the, that's why this is good news because those who were excluded are included. So never count anybody out when it comes to faith. The most crazy people have come to know Jesus. Um, Anybody ever seen the the, uh, the series The Band of Brothers? It's a it's a great war movie thing. It's fantastic. If you read the book, there's a great story. Uh, one of the sorry, one of the guys who was in the sto- in Easy Company recently was in America, and I went to a book signing that he was he's, like he's you know well on now as they say, and uh, he tells a little story of how. They, uh, when they were, they, they got together uh, and they were invading Normandy. One of their friends was killed. He was Jewish, and so they, they were the three friends were really, you know, close friends. So they went to the local parish priest in France and said, "Would you bury our friend?" Well, you know, remember the day it was and, and what's going on. He couldn't bury him because he wasn't Catholic, and, and number two, it was sacred ground. He wasn't baptized, so he couldn't bury him. And the friends were really mad. So what they did was they said they buried their friend uh, beside the um, the cemetery fence, and and put it just to annoy the priest. And they, they they settled the grave. They went away and they came back to sort of coming back and pay their respects. And they couldn't find the grave. And when they went to see the priest to find out what had happened, he was so embarrassed. He said, "Well, look, when you went away, he said I felt so bad. He said I couldn't bury your friend. I couldn't exhume the body and bring him into the graveyard." So I dug up the foundry fence and moved it to include him. And that's what Jesus did. He moved the boundary fence to include men and women who, who think they're outside. And the society that we live in, that's, that's what happened. And Jesus illustrates here, or rather Mark illustrates by these two stories, that Jesus includes the excluded. Don't ever think anybody's excluded. Seriously, they're, they're in anybody. 
you can't come to faith in Christ. I haven't in, in uh, well, my church, I, you know what I mean by that. Um, we've got folks who, um, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't, I'm not telling you anything they wouldn't tell you themselves, okay? We've got uh, a man, he did 14 years for murder. He's a terrorist. And then sitting beside him, you have Beryl, whose husband was shot dead in front of her and her three-year-old daughter, the IRA. And then you have Greta, whose uh, husband was uh, having coffee with his brother in their business one day, and the terrorists came in and shot them both dead. Two brothers at the, in the one day. And, uh, and you, when you see them interacting together and what God has done in their life, you see the truth of this here. That the people who were destitute, desperate, despairing, and, and the people who did it can, can in Christ come together. And actually, that's the truth and the power of the gospel. Okay, let me, let me finish. I've gone a wee bit longer than I, than I meant to. But, uh, and and it's, uh, it's about repentance. Because you need to, you know, we, we need to use that. We need Because Jesus, here's what he says. Let me go back on it. Uh, he says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So he connects them both together. So it is good news. Let's remember that. Or it's the gospel. It's good news. <clears throat> and and I, I, here's what I, the, I discovered this a long time ago. And I want to be careful because I think, I think we've turned the, the, the word into from a positive to a negative. Because the, word, the Greek word, if you'll bear with me, is the word Leon, you, you know all these Greek things, don't you? Metanoia. <laughs> yes, it. Metanoia. Thank you, Leon. Metanoia. And it means, it means to change your mind. So repentance is primarily about, it, I mean, it technically means, you know, you're walking along in your own way and you, you have a change of mind. I mean, in biblical terms, it means you bring your thinking into the line with the thinking of God, and that causes you to have a change of direction. So it's about, it's about primarily changing your thought. Okay, so Jesus says, turn round. And, and I think he's saying something like this. Start living your life differently. Do it my way. Your way doesn't work. Choose mine instead. I, and, I, and I know I've got to be really careful about this, but I think it doesn't really motivate people to follow Christ by constantly reminding them of their shortcomings and their failings and how awful and how bad they are. I don't think Jesus ever used that tactic. I, I was brought up using that tactic. tactic. My mother uh, was uh, her, my parents' marriage broke up when I was 16. I came to know Christ. And I remember my mother had effectively a nervous breakdown, but I didn't realize it at the time, of course. And she said, I remember saying to her one day, I've been a Christian 100 days. And she said to me, I know I've had 100 sermons. She actually said that to me. And she used to, she was only, well, looking back on, she was only 39. She was, you know, she was about Alison's age. And she, she was, uh, she, she used to, she would go out at night, etc. You know, she was a young woman. And so I would put notes under her pillow. Seriously, Bible verses. And I used to put down, be sure your sin will find you out. I, I did, honestly. So she you know, she's just about, she's coming in, she'd get her nighty on a species. And then she smoked, she smoked menthol cigarettes. You know, there the, the, used to be white consulate, they were called. And I, what I would do is I'd get white paper and write verses onto them and slip, roll them up and slip them into her cigarette box. What I was thinking about. One of my one of her favourites was, and the wicked shall be cast into the lake of fire. She loved that one. You know, you can imagine she really went for that. And so <coughs> 
it was just ridiculous. And, and there, was a, there was a sense in which there was, a, there was something of the Pharisee in me who, who I, I don't know what it was about, but it was this idea of wanting her to feel bad instead of, instead of urging her about the goodness of the good news, to change her thinking, bring it into line with Jesus, invite him into her life and start changing it around. One day, 14 years after I got converted, she came to my door. We lived just down the street, same street, knocked the door and said, stood at the door. I said, oh, come in, Mom. She said, I've made a mess of my life. I need to find Jesus. I'm still had the privilege of leading her to Christ and baptizing her a few weeks later. And she's 85 today and still following God. So it, it's a good news story. But what, of course, being me, after she got baptized, she said, Mom, how come it's taken you 14 years to become a Christian? And you know what she said to me? Paul, when I looked at you and Priscilla, I never thought it was good enough. And, and it, it's not, hey, it's not my finest moment. It's not, it's not my, and I look back on that and it kind of shaped me for what I am today, coupled with, a, coupled with another story that I, I'll tell you and I'll, I'll, I'll sort of finish. And, and it was a, when I was a young man, about 20, 22, I was invited to uh, the Methodist mission in Belfast to preach. And what they did was the, the uh, street people would come in and they, they, if they listened to the talk, I'll not tell you what they called it, but if they listened to the talk, they got soup and sandwiches afterwards. So they would all shuffle in, about 30 men, you know, and they'd all sit there and they were, they were alcoholics, etc., etc. And yet, you know, and you gave it to them. I mean, honestly, I gave him hell, so I did. I, I, I dangled him over the pit for about half an hour, so I did, you know, and told him what dirty, rotten sinners they were. And felt pretty good about it myself. And they all just, they all just sat like this here and shuffled out again and had their soup and sandwiches. So the minister came to me uh, and, and he said, Paul, thank you for coming tonight. That was, thank you for coming tonight. And he and said, uh, and, he, and here's what he said to me. And it really, he said, Paul, could I just say one thing? The men that you've been talking to have absolutely no doubt that they are, and he using, it's a long time, 40 years ago, that they are vile, filthy, hell-deserving sinners. But he says, what they don't know is that there's a God who loves them and wants to show them grace. But thanks for coming anyway, Paul. <laughs> and it, it, it was a, you know one of those pivotal moments in your life where you go, you know something, my job is actually to tell this world about how much God loves them. And, and how much there's a God of grace who wants to invade their lives and invade them with the kingdom of God. So there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, 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 a as I say, a method behind my madness. I, I, I think the reality is if Jesus' call to repentance had been like the Pharisees, the people would have repented a long time. In fact, in fact, Jesus reserved his condemnation for those who were the best people around, the so-called righteous. It's very interesting to me because I think they turned the, the, the relationship with God into a list of negatives and missed the whole point of God's love, grace, and generosity. And it almost seemed as if their rightness rendered them incapable of loving. And I think it's a real challenge for us because, you know something, I do want to live in a right way. I do want to be part of a, of a prophetic community. I do want to be a part of a, of a, a group whose who's love and, 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 and whose value system is such that we live in wholesome and pure relationships. I want to do that, but I don't want to be pietistic and separatistic. I want, to, I want to live in a way that models that out as a community, but at the same time reaches out and doesn't render me incapable of loving people who don't match up to my so-called 
moral standards. There's something about us just being channels and conduits of the love and the grace of God into our society that will change them in a way. Jesus was saying to them, repent, believe the good news. In other words, look, don't live your life like that. Try it my way. No, don't, if, people, if people don't know where they're going, let's not assume they're not open to another agenda. Maybe they're open to the agenda of Jesus. And so God's called us to build the kingdom of God. And, and it's, there's a lot more to it than I've talked about tonight. But it kind of gives you the idea of why we did what we did. We did it, why? Because Jesus did it. And what that looks like in the 21st century will be different than it looked like then. We, we work it out. But the principles are exactly the same. We build in relationships. We fight a spiritual battle. We deal with the whole person. We exclude the included. We set women free to serve God. And what do we do? We declare the love and the, the, the grace and the mercy of God. Amen. Okay. Hey, nearly time for, for Mr. Selfridge, so we better get going here. Just checking if you're watching TV. I'm keeping you here to half nine for that, okay? <laughs> what I'm going to do, what, what we're going to do is this. We're going to, because I, I, I hate getting all religious. People get all uptight when they get like that. You know, they go, oh, Lord. You know, what we're going to do is I, I, I want us to pray, and, and I want you to pray, and I, I'm, I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to do something tonight, that God would put one person on your mind that you could begin to pray for, that you could take them on a journey, to both tell them, have to sow the seed, and demonstrate what the kingdom of God looks like. Just one person. One person, maybe, might be your auntie, it might be your granny, it might be, you know, whoever. I, I have a young man in our church, he's not young anymore, but, uh, and uh, the very first time we had a God conversation to the time that he gave his life to Christ was seven years. But you know something? He married a great girl in our church. He was in his late 30s. They've got a family. And he is the best evangelist that you will ever meet. And he looks back and he says, I said, when was it? He said, Paul, it all started those seven years ago when I had my first God conversation. Don't underestimate the power of a God conversation. Okay? And start to pray for that person. It may take seven years. That's okay. That's not, you're not the Holy Spirit. Big relief. Let God take that, take, in that, take that journey. So what we're going to do is we're going to pray. So why don't we stand together? And uh, Lee, could we, we're going we're gonna to sing, okay? And, uh, give us a bit of noise, okay? All right. Because what we're going to do, we're going to call the name out. Now, I know that People in the British Isles hate doing this sort of thing, okay? So that's why we have a loud background noise, okay? So that the person beside you can't hear you, all right? I'm trying to be nice to you here and, and get it all done right. But we're all going to call out that name to God. And we're going to say, whatever, whatever way you want to put it, Lord, will you save so-and-so? God, will you intervene in their life? God, use me. Lord, let me take up a journey. But mention their name before the throne of God tonight. And let's believe that God will hear that prayer that God will begin to change and touch their lives. So let's crank it up. Okay, Lee, let's go for it. Come on, man. Okay, let's go. Lord! Lord!